This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome to Nursing Australia and welcome to 2021. I'm Suzanne Blackaby. For all primary care nurses all over the world, this year is due to be another huge year in our careers. As parts of the world struggle to get on top of the COVID-19 outbreaks, and the current death rate is the worst yet. There is hope, as more than 35 countries have started to roll out vaccines, with many more to follow, including us here in Australia. In a break from regular programming, we bring you this special edition of Nursing Australia, focused on the COVID vaccine and how we can prepare for its imminent arrival. Over the next few months, APNA is hosting a special series of webinars so nurses have the latest information about the vaccine rollout. In these member-only live events, attendees will be given the opportunity to ask questions to experts and government officials. If you're an APNA member, keep an eye on the weekly Connect newsletter for the dates and times of the webinars. If you're not a member, you'll be able to listen to the highlights of these webinars right here on Nursing Australia, soon after the live events happen. To see the accompanying slides from the webinars, listen on the APNA website. Or for just the audio, you can listen on any of your podcast listening apps. In this episode, we bring you content from our first webinar, Vaccination Planning for Primary Healthcare Nurses. Ensuring the supply of a safe and effective vaccine is of paramount importance to protect us, our families and our communities from COVID-19. And then we bring you a wellness segment. Dr. Arvi teaches us how to connect into our emotional intelligence and how to better help our patients. The difference between our experience and our expectations causes a change in how we feel. But first, the news. In this bulletin, Australia's holiday break and New Year celebrations marred by outbreaks, lockdowns and border closures. The government sets out its plans for the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and the death toll in the US reaches 400,000 Americans. This is Nursing Australia News. Hi, this is Maria Petrakis. Australians began the new year with a new round of border closures and lockdowns after COVID-19 outbreaks in Sydney. In Queensland, Brisbane was shut down for three days after a case of the highly contagious UK variant was detected. The outbreak threw holiday travel plans for Australians over the Christmas and New Year break into disarray, and restrictions were only beginning to be slowly loosened in January. Despite the travel disruption, a new survey shows that most Australians support the practice of border closures, as well as the use of masks to control the spread of COVID-19. Nearly three quarters of Australians say mask wearing should be compulsory, and more than two thirds don't want state borders to be completely open. In other news, Australia's COVID-19 vaccine rollout will now begin in mid or late February, earlier than originally planned. Approval of the Pfizer vaccine is due by the end of January, and it will take another two weeks for the first shipments of vaccine to arrive after that. Vaccination will begin with those dealing with international arrivals or quarantine facilities, followed by frontline health workers and those living in aged care or with a disability. The government aims to vaccinate 80,000 Australians a week and 4 million by the end of March. The vaccine will be delivered through 1,000 distribution points, including general practice and possibly pharmacies. 
Vaccination won't be mandatory, but will be strongly encouraged. The rollout has been described as the most complex logistical exercise in our country's history. Support for taking the vaccine, however, remains robust. 77% of Australians say they're willing to be vaccinated, the same percentage as in November. That figure, however, is lower than the 87% of Australians who said they would be vaccinated back in March and April of 2020. Around the world, COVID-19 led to record deaths in Mexico, Germany extended its partial lockdown, and China stepped up new measures after getting new cases. In the US, the death toll from COVID-19 reached 400,000 as Donald Trump's presidency ended. The total is nearly equal to all the Americans killed in World War II. The UK also set a record with 1,610 deaths on January 19, its deadliest from coronavirus. The number came as the number of new infections fell, showing early signs that lockdown restrictions are working. And that's the news for Nursing Australia. There is a lot of content out there at the moment about the Australian rollout of COVID vaccines, and the topic is moving so fast. It is hard for nurses to keep up. That's why APNA is hosting a series of webinars to keep members up to date with the latest. In the first webinar, we discuss the Australian Government COVID vaccination policy and subsequent planning requirements relevant for primary healthcare nurses. Our presenters were Katrina Otto from Train at Medical, registered nurse Michelle Horswood and me, Suzanne Blackaby. Our first learning objective is to understand where we're up to with the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. So COVID-19 has undeniably changed all of our lives and ensuring the supply of a safe and effective vaccine is of paramount importance to protect us, our families and our communities from COVID-19. In response to that, the Australian Government developed a COVID-19 vaccination policy. The very first draft of this came out in about the middle of November last year, and this was updated mid-December because of the fall off of the Queensland vaccine, and also because the original draft wasn't padded out as much as the, the updated version. This policy sets out some key points. Firstly, that COVID vaccine will be free for all Medicare eligible Australians and most Visa card holders. The policy also states clear lines of responsibility across Australian state and territory governments. Now, I think this part's really important for us to think about because if we know the lines of responsibility, when something comes up and we don't know what the answer is to our questions, we know which areas of government are responsible for that particular thing and it helps us to know where to find information or even to answer our own questions. So broadly, the key responsibilities for the Australian government include regulation of the vaccines, choice of manufacturers, transport to sites in states and territories. They're responsible for setting funding policy and for ensuring data collection and monitoring systems are in place. The state and territory governments, however, have key responsibilities in ensuring we have a qualified and appropriate workforce that are available to administer the vaccine, and also ensuring vaccine sites remain compliant at all times with safety, ethical and reporting obligations. The Australian Technical Advisory Group 
on immunisation or the ATAGI are responsible for determining vaccine hierarchy or the priority groups for us to give the vaccine to. And the Australian Immunisation Register is responsible for monitoring vaccine coverage, which we'll talk a little bit more about both of those things later. And there's the, the actual link to that particular policy if you'd like to have a look at it. Some other important points outlined in the policy is to date there is no licensed vaccine for COVID-19 in Australia. We have three vaccine candidates being Pfizer, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine and also Novavax. In addition to the pre-purchase of vaccines, Australia has an agreement and has joined COVAX. Now COVAX is led by Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance, and that's a global effort to support rapid and equitable access to COVID vaccines. And Australia's contributed $80 million to this effort, not only to support vaccination supply here in Australia, but also to ensure vaccination supply across developing countries. The other very important point about this policy is that it clearly identifies primary care to be at the core of the COVID vaccination rollout. And the reason for this, as stated in the policy, is that primary care historically in Australia is the major site of immunisation. We have well-established protocols for vaccination and a well-trained workforce. So our next learning objective is to discuss COVID vaccine priority groups and the proposed implementation plans outlined in the COVID vaccination roadmap. So as I mentioned earlier, the ATAGI has been given the responsibility for determining population groups for vaccination prioritisation. And the important thing is this must be evidence-based and it must be influenced by the prevailing epidemiology. So what that means is that as our knowledge of evidence changes or as the prevailing epidemiology changes, so will the priority groups or adjustments amongst those. On the 7th of January, Scott Morrison held a press conference to announce Australia's epidemiology and COVID vaccine roadmap, which includes the current rollout plans as per the current ATAGI recommendations. This slide shows the, the rollout strategy that was announced on the 7th of January. And we can see that phase 1A, or the first people to receive the vaccine, are those considered at highest risk of contracting the disease. Interestingly, in this group, if we have a look, the first group listed there are quarantine and border workers. They've been added since the original draft of the priority groups. And I, I see that as a really good example of how plans can change in response to circumstances. So in Australia, we've had uh, a reasonable number of cases um, contracted from quarantine and, and border workers. And we also had the discovery of the UK strain within that population. So you can see that that adjustment was made in response to that. Phase 1B predominantly is the, are those at risk of severe illness if they contract the disease and other workers that are at risk of contracting the disease. Phase 2A includes some more at-risk populations and those workers important for societal functioning and also those at higher risk because of their work. 
2B is the adult of the balance of the adult population. And phase three is lastly children. There's always the question of well, where do we all fit in? If you're a GP clinic, a GP respiratory clinic, you fit into phase 1A, so you and your staff will be vaccinated in phase 1A. If you're a routine general practice, you at present fit into phase 1B. Now I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking more about the rollout roadmap announced on the 7th of January. Assuming we go to schedule, we're expecting the Pfizer vaccine to be available for administration in the middle of February. This vaccine, as we're probably all aware, is the one that requires ultra cold chain storage requirements. So logistically, that's going to be really difficult to roll out in general practice. So what is planned is that there'll be 30 to 50 hospital hubs in urban and rural areas and where those sites are will be finalised in conjunction with state and territory governments. Phase 1B, it's planned for the AstraZeneca vaccine and at the moment they're saying that that vaccine will be out soon after the Pfizer vaccine, so possibly early March. This particular vaccine uses our usual cold chain storage between two and eight degrees. So it's a, it's a good choice for us to administer in general practice. And it's planned that when there's enough of that particular vaccine, the sites will be expanded to include primary care settings. There's also mention of some other clinical settings such as dedicated COVID respiratory clinics and later pharmacies, but that hasn't been um, planned as yet. I'm sure you're all aware that there's um, this vaccine has, has attracted a lot of um, dialogue around efficacy. And what I would like to say in response to that is that any vaccine approved by the TGA, remember that it hasn't been approved yet, but the plan is that it will be, will be considered safe and effective at preventing serious illness and death. On the 14th of January, Greg Hunt announced in an article in Ausdoc that GP clinics wanting to register for COVID vaccination could do so commencing the 18th of January. Those plans haven't been firmed up as yet. The 18th of January is already gone. That was Monday. So we're expecting any day now to receive news about registration. There has been some expressions of interest amongst the states and territories and also the, the PHNs have asked general practice for expressions of interest, but the actual registration pro process hasn't been firmed up as yet. So our next objective is to develop an awareness of key requirements for primary healthcare nurses involved in COVID-19 vaccination ordering, storage and administration. The first thing that I wanted to mention is to draw everybody's attention to the new vaccine storage guidelines. And we've put the link there to access the new guidelines. Most importantly for general practice to, to order and use government funded vaccines, you must have a purpose built fridge. At least one member of staff must have done the mandatory cold chain training. And we've put the link for that in the resource section at the end of this presentation. And the other important thing that's being spoken about is that practices need to be prepared for random auditing, auditing sorry, to make sure that you're compliant with those guidelines. 
Now, I wanted to speak a little bit more about primary healthcare nurses, particularly. It's expected that there'll be mandatory training for all clinical staff giving the COVID vaccine. This hasn't been set out for us as yet, but in the interim, the World Health Organization do have an online training module and the link is in our resource section. I did it the other day. There's some quite useful information in those training modules. It, it says that it's three hours, but it didn't take me very long to go through it because as a nurse working in primary health in Australia, you'll already know a lot of the things so you can actually actually skip through it. So yeah, definitely worth a look. The next thing I want to talk about is um, authorised nurse immunisers. Authorised nurse immunisers must have completed a course which has been approved by the Health Education Services Australia, which is different amongst all of the states. And I've added the, the link on the resource page if you'd like to check which courses are currently approved. I think authorised nurse immunisers are going to be in high demand throughout this vaccination process. There is quite a few scholarships available at the moment for nurses, practice nurses to do this, these particular courses. So look out for that if you've got a spare 100 or so hours between now and middle of February or March, <laughs> you may be able to get a scholarship and, and do one of these courses and be an authorised nurse immuniser. I've actually enrolled one of our nurses in the benchmark course, which was just recently um, listed in New South Wales and I did get a scholarship for her from the Primary Health Network. So have a look into that if you're interested. There's also some other points that I wanted to talk about. The expectations for authorised nurse immunisers, but I also think they translate to all nurses or all primary health nurses working in general practice. We know that vaccines routinely are scheduled for drugs. And so if they're prescribed by a doctor, they can be given in general practice by an endorsed enrolled nurse, by a registered nurse, or by an authorised nurse immuniser. And all of those nurses really should ensure that their knowledge and skills are up to date, and obviously that they've completed any mandatory training that's, that's required. I certainly recommend that all nurses working in primary care have indemnity insurance. And we know that our practices have indemnity insurance and that we're covered to some extent under that particular, under those particular policies. But I would highly recommend that individual nurses also have insurance. And APNA offer insurance as an, at an additional cost for all members. So if you are interested, please have a look at that and consider taking out insurance, um, particularly when you're involved in, in programs such as this. We know that all nurses should administer vaccines as per NHMAC guidelines and the Australian or the digital version of the Australian Immunisation Handbook, not product guidelines. We go by the, the guidelines that, that are worked out for us here in Australia. And we also know that, that vaccines should be stored according to the storage guidelines that we mentioned previously. I just want to touch briefly on timing of the vaccinations. We were informed only earlier this week that the COVID vaccine, it is recommended that it gives us 
it's given as a standalone vaccine. And because it's going to reach our shelves or our fridges during the influenza vaccination season, there was a, a lot of question around timing between those vaccines. And the information that we have now is that there should be a 14 day gap between the COVID vaccine and the influenza vaccine. And there's no stipulation for which vaccine is given first, but so long as there's, there is a 14 day gap in between, that's the important point. All nurses giving vaccination should have done CPR training in the last 12 months. Now, this is something with COVID that, that may have gone by the wayside because particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, we were avoiding those face-to-face -face type training sessions, but particularly if they involve contact such as a CPR training course would. But it is important now that you do update your CPR skills. I think that it would be also a good idea to review your emergency protocols, not just for anaphylaxis, but also for other immediate um, adverse events, things like vasovagal events and things like that. Just talk to your, your team about management of those before we get into the vaccination program. The next thing I wanted to talk about was vaccine administration. We know that um, the vaccines are going to be multi-dose vials and you need to ensure that you're skilled in using multi-dose vials, firstly in relation to accurate dosage. In the context of a limited supply and designated population groups, this vaccine is going to be closely monitored, possibly with a QR code to ensure that, that the doses are monitored and Katrina will be talking a little bit more about that later. And you also need to ensure that you follow the infection control guidelines for multi-dose files. Now, all of that is covered in the World Health Organization training. So I'm predicting that that will be part of the mandatory training that we'll do here in Australia. And we have been made aware that the ordering of disposable needles, syringes, et cetera, for the AstraZeneca vaccine won't be required. So you don't need to sort of rush out and buy a whole pile of needles and syringes and things. I wanted to mention adverse event reporting here. It's going, because it's a new vaccine, it's going to be really important that we cover any adverse event and we report it appropriately. As we're all aware, we have a national form for reporting adverse events following immunisation, which depending on where we are, we send off to our local health district or we send it straight to the TGA. It all, they, all forms end up with the TGA, but the, the path is dependent upon where you are. So we need to make sure that any, any adverse event that's reported to us has a form filled in and, and sent off so that we can start to collect data around the side effect profile of this vaccine. At present, it's standalone, but if we collect good data and we find out that the side effect profile is good, then it may be that, you know, we can then look at giving the, the vaccine in combination with other vaccines. And those of you who remember the, the rollout of the Vexero vaccine probably recall that it was initially a standalone vaccine. And once we collected data in relation to the side effect profile, then it 
can then could then be given in conjunction with the other childhood vaccine. So we're hoping that this may happen with the COVID vaccine down the track. The other thing I wanted to mention is Ausvax Safety. Now, Ausvax Safety is an organisation which collects data nationally. Previously, they've done it for influenza vaccine, but the COVID plan discusses doing it for the COVID vaccine, where we will consent and enrol patients in our practice in this particular program. And at certain intervals after the vaccine, they will get messages asking them if they've had any side effects. So they'll either get an SMS or an email, whichever way they elect to be con contacted. And that, that again, is a, a great way of collecting data. So please, if you are going to be a vaccine centre and you have the opportunity to participate in that sort of data collection, it's definitely a great thing to do. So the next objective is to, to develop a practice plan for clear and confident communication with patients in relation to the vaccine. Because this is a new vaccine, there's going to be lots of questions around this. And I think it's really important to, to sit down now with your clinical, the nurses, the, the doctors and your admin staff and talk about how you're going to give your patients confident, clear, consistent, information because there's going to be a lot of questions particularly in relation to vaccine safety they've come up already they've even come up amongst our all of our staff here at the practice that i work at and so i listened to a talk toward the end of last year from the public health unit in the hunter new england area and it was presented by Patrick Cashman and Jody Stevenson, who were very well-known immunisation experts, and how they described it. And I took this on board because I thought it was a great way of describing it to, to patients particularly, is that usually when a vaccine's developed, it happens in a very linear fashion. So we get one step after the other one, you know, one step's completely completed and then we move to the next. And what's happened with the COVID vaccine is there's been an enormous amount of resources put into the vaccine development so that so many of those processes happen simultaneously. So there's been no compromise on safety. It's had so much resources poured into it that it can happen in a much quicker fashion because of those because of those resources. So I think I thought that was a really good way of explaining it and I've certainly used that in my practice since I listened to that talk. We know that there's going to be patient information packs developed for us to give out to patients. We haven't got those as yet. So in the interim your your practice messages are going to be really important. For your admin staff, something that I've done before that, that works really well and we've started to produce these for the practice that I'm working at now, is develop scripted responses. And that's particularly good for your administration staff. So common questions that patients ask, when is the vaccine going to be available? Can I make an appointment, etc.? Have little scripted responses so that everybody's saying the same next most important thing for you, always communicate up-to-date information. So that means that you need to stay up-to-date and knowledgeable. 
in particular, you should be checking the APNA COVID page. Now that at the moment that's updated every week, but it's updated much more often if required. So please check that page. You'll find the link at the end of this presentation. Also look at information from your local health district. Look at what the Australian state and federal, the state and territory governments, what information they're disseminating in relation to COVID vaccine. Your, your local PHNs will also have a COVID page. Look at that. And lastly, look at the RACGP. They've actually been disseminating some really good information. If your practice manager doesn't receive the RACGP newsletter, you should certainly recommend that to them because there's a special COVID section on that. And um, that will help them stay up to date as well. And most importantly, as clinical leaders in the practice, which you are as primary healthcare nurses, you should be disseminating information within your practice. Do some little email broadcasts about what you've learned and what you know, so that everybody stays abreast of any, any developments in information. And of course, have regular meetings. Maybe a good idea is to have a big notice board where you, you put up any new and current information so that all of your practice can stay up to date and aware of what's going on. Okay, our next learning objective is to identify key planning issues for your COVID vaccination clinics. The first thing that I would um, consider thinking about is assessing your vaccine storage capacity. Now we've all seen a fridge like this and it's good tidy up, but um, what I would highly recommend is we know that you can order your government funded vaccines once a month. So look at how much you actually, how many vaccines you give and how much you keep. So if you're keeping six months supply of childhood vaccines, now's probably a good time to pair that back so that you've got room for supply of other vaccines. We know that um, the COVID vaccine is probably going to land in our fridges with along with the influenza vaccine. So think about how much room you've got for both of those vaccines. The thing with the influenza vaccine, and it's really been very prevalent over the last three, four years, is that mid-season we've not been able to secure supply. So what we all do is we pre-order our private supply of influenza vaccines, which tends to arrive, we can sort of have it scaled at you know so many a month or whatever but it does take up a lot of room in our fridge so consider how much you've pre-ordered for private vaccines consider what you're going to need to order on a monthly basis to service your funded patient population and think about how much room you've got i'm not suggesting that everybody run out and buy a new fridge but it certainly might be something that that you think about once you assess your storage capacity. I actually purchased a new fridge for the practice that I'm working at in Sydney this year, prior to even thinking about the COVID vaccine, because last year I felt like we were bordering on, you know, the limits of storage guidelines for the influenza vaccine. And I really wanted to be comfortable that I could meet the storage guidelines this year. So I have already purchased a second fridge. So think about that, think about the expense involved and 
obviously weigh up the the benefits um, for your practice if if it's a, if it's affordable. I think planning is is going to be such an important thing. Now's the time to consider your workforce, consider training opportunities for all of your primary healthcare nurses, or do you need more nurses to be able to meet the needs of your clinic's plans for immunisation? Think about how you're going to advertise and promote your vaccine. Again, as clinical leaders, you're going to be advising your practice managers about advertising strategies for, for vaccines. It, it's your area of expertise, so you'll have valuable information for your practice managers along those lines. Again, you're going to be the experts here to consider logistics for your clinic. Think about how you're going to manage large numbers of patients coming through your practice given the need for social distancing. How did you manage it in the influenza season last year? Did you do it well? What did you learn from it? How can you do it better this time? In giving the vaccine, can you manage patient privacy? And that was one thing that I picked up as a point from the World Health Organization training. I hadn't actually thought of that. Not that I would want to expose patients to something that wasn't private, but I hadn't, that wasn't at the forefront of my brain when I was thinking about logistics of the clinic. So think about maintaining patient privacy. Think about where your patients are going to wait pre and post vaccination. I always like to have a designated area for post-vaccination, particularly if you have a large waiting waiting room, so that the designated person monitoring that area knows where to look for people who are waiting post-vaccination. Post Think about what systems you can put in place to make that easier. Now, anyone who's worked with me knows that um, the practices that I've worked at have these immunisation cards. I picked it up as a bit of a tip about 15 years ago from Simon Gould, who's well known in the CPR education space. And what, what we do with these is when a patient has a vaccination, and we have hot pink ones here at O'Connell Street at the practice that I'm currently working at, but you can choose your favourite colour. And when a patient has an immunisation, as the nurse, you put a little sticky note on the card to say what vaccine they've had, what time it was given. You give it to the patient and you, you tell them to wait in the post-vaccination area for 15 minutes with the card in their hand. At the moment, I say 15 minutes because that's the information that we have currently, but that may change. There's some talk today about that being extended to 30 minutes, but at present we believe it to be 15 minutes, but we'll keep you updated if any more information comes to light about that. So at present it's 15 minutes. The other thing that I do with these cards, and I haven't done it in this example, is I put whether the vaccine is funded or not, so that after the 15 minutes I tell the person to go to reception and give the card to the receptionist. And that serves two purposes. It identifies them in the waiting room and it also tells reception what they have to charge for the vaccine without going back and asking the nurses if the, if the patient needs to pay for something. And I, I think this is a good thing to do. So think about, if you haven't already, think about introducing that in your clinic. It's just a little system thing which um, can be really important. The other 
thing that I'd ask you to consider is think about where your fridge is in relation to where vaccines will be administered. And remember that if you remove multi-dose vials from the cold chain, they can't be returned. So think very clearly about where, you, where you're going to give those vaccines. If possible, give them where the fridge is. That, that would make the most sense. But I know that all, all practices, it's not, the fridge might not necessarily be in the treatment room or in the area that, that you're vaccinating. But certainly think about that. And if you do take vaccines out of the cold chain and you're storing them in an esky to give, make sure that the temperature is monitored and remember that, that the vaccine can't be returned to the cold chain once you, once you started using it. I think now's the time to think about appointment structure. How's that going to look in your practice? What works for you and the, the doctors that you work with? Do you do the vaccination clinics routinely together, nurse and doctor? Does the nurse give the, the vaccines and the doctor records it? Think about it now and play to your expertise. I, I think that nurses are going to be the clever ones in drawing up multi-dose files and, and trying to get, if it's five or ten, doses out of the vial, you, you probably have much better skills at doing that than, than the GPs. So think about how you're going to organise that, organise that now. Think about the length of time you're going to have remembering that there's going to be a formal consent process. You're going to give the vaccine and then you're going to direct the person. So it's not going to be a five minute clinic. It's it, it's going to be longer longer than that. So think about how much time that's going to take in your practice. Think about the PPE for you whilst you're administering the vaccine. And do you have guaranteed supply of that? Talk to your PHN about supplying PPE and also talk to your practice manager about ensuring supply if you're going to be registered as a vaccine centre. At minimum, the World Health Organisation says you need gloves, mask and face protection, whether that be goggles or a a face mask. Those clear face masks are, are fairly inexpensive. I think they're $5. Look at getting some of those in your practice because I don't think um, eye reading glasses or eyeglasses or or goggles are, are as good as those. They, they tend to be very good to work with and a lot less inhibiting. So think about that and have those conversations now. Think about your recall systems. What I would recommend doing is um, we know that the, there's two doses to this vaccine and it's four weeks apart. So think about booking your patient for their second vaccination at the time of the first. The other thing that I'd recommend doing because we want to adhere to the schedule, the dosage schedule for this vaccine is to, which is four weeks. So when you give your first dose of vaccine, I would be looking at quarantining the second dose for that particular patient group. And the reason for that is as you secure your next supply, you can then vaccinate a new group of people, quarantine their second dose. So the cycle continues and, the, and you can ensure supply of the vaccine. We don't want to be caught giving that this vaccine outside of the, the recommended schedule. Also make sure that your recall and reminder systems are in place, whatever you use in your practice, whether that be SMS reminders, 
however it, it works for you, make sure that it's in, in place and everybody knows what's happening. I've, I have spoken about the vaccine supply. Billing, Katrina is going to be covering that a little bit in the in the next part of the, the webinar, but think about um, how that's going to work in, in your practice. Document and share your plans, put up a, a nice big notice board in the tea room or, or where you meet so that everybody in the practice knows where you're up to with planning your clinics. You'll be the clinical leaders in this process. So think about think about that and think about what you can bring to the practice and how you can help your doctors and administration staff and your practice manager organise these clinics. The next objective is to ensure practice compliance for documentation and reporting. And I'm going to hand over to Katrina to talk to you about that. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Michelle. I won't put my camera on because we've got a lot of people online and I'm also going to speak really quickly because um, this is about technology and documentation and I know you've got a lot of clinical questions and I want Michelle to be able to, and Suzanne to be able to answer those. Um, so when it comes to documentation and technology, uh, First thing to know, COVID vaccine policy clearly states that the Australian Immunisation Register, AIR, is given responsibility for monitoring vaccine coverage. So for them for, to be able to do their job, we need to provide them with that information about the vaccines you do, vaccinations you're doing. Your practice management software, whether it's best practice or medical director or um, any of the, the practice management software programs, should automatically now be enabling that connection with the AIR. So number one would be to ensure that your software is up to date. That needs to happen anyway by the 1st of February because we've got active ingredient prescribing and you won't be able to prescribe as usual if you don't update. So really important in these times of rapid change, ensure the technology is keeping up because what will happen is you, these COVID vaccines have a serial number and you will need to scan. So what will happen is when you go to add immunisation in your software, in the patient record, there'll be a new serial number field. So it's anticipated that um, the practice will scan a QR code on the vaccine vial to read the serial number. So I don't want anyone to stress about this. The software vendors in Australia are very lucky. They're, they're very good. They're already onto it. Best practices even built it into their latest release. It's just hidden at the moment. And they're working out the functionality and hoping to be able to utilise the existing integration with Medicare to upload the COVID vaccines to the AIR with the serial number. So watch this space. We're going to be giving you a lot of information about this, your software vendors will as well. And it also really highlights not only the need to upgrade your technology, tell your practice managers, I'm sure they know. Um, and I, Michelle and I told um, hundreds of practice managers today this as well, improve your data. As Michelle said, there, there is very real chance that our patients may need to go somewhere else to have this COVID vaccine. And that's, um, I'm a practice manager, that kind of makes me go, oh, 
So what would that look like if your patient went somewhere else? What is their clinical data like? Ensure that is as, as much as you can. We need to be able to identify our priority groups in our practice with your data. So now, while we're waiting on a lot of answers to other things, could definitely be a focus area. Ensuring that you as clinicians um, are updating and uploading your patient's health summaries to my health record um, because you can do that and then ensuring that uh, if they want you to and they have one and that will assist other practices who may see your patients and maybe the ones who give them the vaccine. So please know that information will come from um, us, your vendors, your APNA as you go along. The recall management as well is it you do that, um, of course, well now in your practice, you will still be the ones identifying your groups, reaching out to your practice, um, reaching out to your patients. There may be a national booking system and we've no idea what that will look like yet, but you will still manage, and you're doing flu vaccines as well, you'll still manage the recalls and reminders. So it might be just time to, to start to think and talk about what could this look like if you're doing first dose, flu vax, second dose, and also the informed consent process. I've been working with Avant and the RACGP and please know that they are creating materials for us all to use, developing those at the moment. As a medical software trainer, I train medical director and best practice have done forever. When something happens like this that is new, it's really even more important to over-communicate and over-document. So when I say that in the progress notes, when you are consenting with your patient, not only document the what you go over with them, the questions, document their answers, document the information that you gave them. So ideally the information, the vaccine information will go through your software straight to the AIR. If not, we have um, other ways to be able to do that. You will have options for how you scan. And really significant thing for Australia, I have a sister who's a clinician in the US and I'm, she's just had her first dose and I'm watching and seeing how they're managing it. And really significant for Australia, we have a national electronic shared health record in my health record. It's free, it's available, 90% of your patients have one and information from the AIR feeds directly into the My Health record. So that's going to be a really important tool to help with all of this, help when your patients may need another healthcare provider, but also to be able to look at their own immunisation status and be able to share that as they need to. Now, of course, if a patient doesn't have a My Health record, no problem, we can generate the immunisation summary from the software, but they will need to have a record. So uh, something I'd like to share with you is that this is the first of a series of webinars that APNA is going to um, broadcast around the COVID vaccine rollout. Um, we understand that the information is changing quickly and we will move as fast as we can with that. From all the team at APNA, we really appreciate the response to tonight's webinar has been overwhelming. 
Um, and we're amazed by all of you and we're um, glad to continue the conversation. Our next webinar will be on the 3rd of February, where we will be joined by Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer Alison McMillan. Keep an eye on APNA's weekly newsletter, The Connect, for more details. Who has the time to wade through every piece of healthcare news? Primary healthcare nurses certainly don't. Fear not. APNA's weekly Connect e-newsletter condenses key industry news into digestible content while serving up a feast of useful resources. Stay in the know and save time. Subscribe for free at www.apna.asn.au. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. Keeping ourselves well this year is key to ensure that as nurses, we can help others as the global pandemic continues. Dr. Avi is here to tell us how to connect with our emotional intelligence and how to better help our patients. And today we're going to go deeper into the 6E methodology that we've been educating nurses about around their own well-being. And the first E is about experience. The second E is about emotions. And we're going to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence and why you feel the way you do on a daily basis. And we're going to talk about a simple formula. And that formula involves experience versus expectations. Now, what do I mean by that? When we go through life on a daily basis, we're experiencing through our senses, we're experiencing through our eyes, our ears, our skin, and we're going through a whole range of emotions. And one of the things that we figured out was that the difference between our experience and our expectations causes a change in how we feel. Let me give you an example. If you're going to the shops and you're about to do your daily grocery shopping, you expect to go in and do this all very quickly, but suddenly COVID hits and everyone's rushing to the shops and you see a long queue. All of a sudden, your expectations of a short queue has been disrupted by a negative experience. So when your experience is less than your expectations, you get angry or frustrated, okay? When the experience is less than your expectations, we get angry or frustrated. Now, let's take the opposite. We're about to go and watch a movie, and we've heard the movie's just okay or not very good, but you're forced to go because you're accompanying your partner, for example. You go into the cinema, you sit down, you watch the movie, and the movie's great. You totally love it. All of a sudden, you're delighted right? And in this situation, the experience was much better than your expectation. So you had a very low expectation of the movie, but the experience was much better. You're delighted. You emotionally feel better. So as we go through our day-to-day -day situations, when you're at work, working on the wards, uh, dealing with patients and so on, have a think about, is your experience good or bad? And how is it related to your expectations, right? Because if we want to change our moods and how we feel, whether that's at work or that's at home, these are the two variables we can change. We can change the experience, the interaction with our colleagues. We can change the interaction with um, how we deal with other patients. But some aspects of our experience are totally out of our control. Right? So if, for example, management um, you know, make a call that today there's going to be no visiting hours or, for example, there's going to be job cuts, 
um, or salary cuts and so on, these aspects of our experience are out of our control. Then what is the thing that we can shift if we can't change the experience? Well, the thing that we can shift is our expectations of the situation, right? So one of the things to remember that is if we want to feel good, maybe we lower our expectations or maybe we improve the experience either by um, changing how we communicate with others, by being more empathetic, uh, or perhaps if we you know, want a salary rise, perhaps we need to um, learn how to speak out, but speak out in a diplomatic way because speaking out in a uh, sort of confrontational way hasn't achieved the outcome so far. So changing the experience or changing the expectations is one of the ways in which you can change whether you feel delighted or feel angry about a situation. The same is true when dealing with situations that are very anxious. For example, a lot of people now uh, are worried about COVID, are worried about quarantines, are worried about the impact on family members, on colleagues, or their own professional development. So a lot of these issues around the experience are out of our control. So one of the things that we can change is our expectations. So if we can actually communicate or get clear on the expectations to other colleagues, if we can actually say to our colleagues or our managers or even patients what to expect moving forward. Um, for example, if they're about to go home, then say to a patient, um, here's what you need to expect, here's the protocols, here's where you go for testing if you get symptoms, here's how you wear a mask, um, here's what you should do with your family members. You are managing their expectations so that they can actually feel more delighted when they go home because there are more elements under our control. So in summary, experience versus expectations results in a change of our moods. So these are the two variables moving forward that you can address to you to changing your well-being moving forward. I'm Dr. Avi. Thank you so much for today and bye-bye for now. Well, that brings us to the end of the first episode of Nursing Australia for 2021. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another episode featuring content from our next webinar on the COVID vaccine rollout. It's a Q&A with Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer Alison McMillan. Until then, look after yourself. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. For more information, please visit us at www.apna.asn.au. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.